at a couple of sections out of Ecclesiastes chapter 7 today as we continue our teaching series on the topic of wisdom. And these sections of scripture, <coughs> excuse me, these sections of scripture actually have some common themes, themes that are mentioned in various other places in the Bible, and they're repeated quite often. I myself have preached on these themes several times, and you might think to yourself, well, why all the repetition? And I'll tell you, because people are forgetters. Yes, we remember some things, but we forget a lot of things, and we usually remember what we shouldn't remember, and we forget what we shouldn't forget. For example, if ten things are spoken to you on a day, and nine of those things are positive and uplifting and encouraging, and one of them is negative and destructive and hurtful, at the end of the day, what are you going to remember? You're going to remember that one nasty thing said to you instead of the nine positive things. We remember what we should forget. We forget what we should remember. Or how about this? I've been a pastor for over 33 years in youth and adult ministry, and there are other pastors that I go to conferences with. They seem to have this miraculous ability, and you know other believers like this, they can memorize reams of scripture. You'll quote a scripture to them, and they'll name the chapter and verse and the books of the Bible it's in, and everything, just by rote. It is amazing. I can't seem to do that. I struggle to memorize scripture, and yet I have all the TV theme songs from the 1970s. <laughs> I still have the Brady Bunch and Cheers and Friends and all of those theme songs stuck in my head. I can't forget them because we remember the wrong things, don't we? So today we're going to look at some important themes so we can remember the right things. And it starts with this. And by the way, I love the title of my sermon. I have so much fun with the sermon titles. Today our message is entitled, The Good Old Days in German Beer. And you'll see what this has to do with both of those things. Let's start with the good old days. And this is one verse we're going to look at out of Ecclesiastes 7. Do not say, why were the old days better than these? It is not wise to ask such questions. Okay, <laughs> this is so 2019. This is so important for us to hear today. It is really warning us away from the danger of getting trapped in the past to long for the good old days, whether the good old days were five years ago or 55 years ago. And this theme of not getting trapped in the past is mentioned in other places. Let's look at Philippians chapter 3, verse 13. The Apostle Paul says this, Brothers and sisters, I do not consider myself yet to have taken hold of it, this perfection he's talking about. But one thing I do, I forget what is behind and I strain forward to what is ahead. And he's telling people, that's what you've got to do. You can't get trapped in the past, okay? Now, when we long for the good old days, what we're actually doing is we're practicing selective memory. Because the good old days weren't really that good. You've just forgotten some of the bad parts. Some of you that grow, grew up in the 50s, you believe lead paint in your children's nursery was a good idea. That's not good. In the 60s, you had racism. Actually, we still have racism, okay? But you had segregation in the 60s. The 70s gave us Vietnam and Richard Nixon. The 80s, two words for you children of the 80s, big hair. You had big hair, okay? Some of you have no hair now, but you had big hair. The 90s gave us an atrocity called boy dance, all right? And it goes on and on and on. Each generation has good and bad, but we practice selective memory. We only remember the good in our past. Look, the past had some good, and yay for that, but we just don't want to get trapped there. Think about puberty. 
Most of us have been through puberty, okay? It was a good thing. We're thankful for it. We're glad we went through that stage in our life. But you never want to get trapped in that hormone-fueled time of your life, would you, where everything reminded you of sex. Ooh, that song reminds me of sex. Look at that cloud. That looks like sex. All that kind of stuff. You wouldn't want to get trapped there. Life is not about staying at one stage. It's about expanding, growing, learning, evolving, and changing. And what's true about our life is true about our faith as well. We should never get trapped in the past, and yet that is exactly what so many people do. So many people, when it comes to their faith, get trapped in one moment of time. Now, it's a glorious moment, no doubt. It's that moment when suddenly they, they realize Jesus is real. He's not just a figure on the pages of some sacred text, but he's a reality. And then they are introduced to things like the Bible and prayer and church. And then they're handed some beliefs, usually by the person of authority in their life at the time, that tells them what they should believe. So they got these beliefs, and they got some new things they've learned, and then that's that. They seem to push a giant pause button in their faith, and they get stuck. I'm going to cough for a second. Ken, mute me, okay? <clears throat> okay, I'm done. All right. <laughs> this heavily influences how people decide what church to go to. As a pastor, I see this all the time. Rarely do people walk into a church building and think, man, I hope this is a place that challenges my beliefs and biases. I hope this is a place that expands my thinking and faith. I hope this is a place where they'll prod me to go on the journey, the uncomfortable path of change and evolving. No, that's not how people choose churches. I'll tell you how most people choose churches. They walk into the door, they hear the preacher talking, and they go, hey, that person thinks exactly like me. What? I'm staying here. Okay, that's what they do. And then they stay Unless something changes, they stay as long as the building doesn't change, the color of the walls don't change, God forbid we had pews instead of chairs, that's been something that's caused people to leave churches, and then if the pastor dares to preach even something, a remotely new idea, something just a little bit provocative, they're out of there, they're gone, because that's not what they signed up for. In another pastor's words, they leave for places where they can cling to familiar themes. That's what happens. I pray with all of my heart that this will never be a place where you can cling to familiar themes because that's actually a form of death. Look at our bodies for an example of this. Our bodies basically replace themselves every seven to ten years. So that person you remember yourself being ten years ago, you're still you, but your body's completely changed. Old cells die, and they slough off, and new cells replace them. Much of the household dust in your house is just your old body parts that have sloughed off. Okay, that's really comforting, right? All right? But our bodies change, or they die. That's what happens, and it's the same with our faith. And the Bible itself, I'm going to stretch it to right here, okay? The Bible itself is a great illustration about embracing change. The Bible is not a static story that was dictated to people by God and they wrote it down in some robotic state. It's not that. The Bible is this beautiful unfolding narrative. When you read it from beginning to end, you see that ancient people, God met them where they're at, and they were wrestling with trying to understand the mysteries of life and the universe and trying to understand the the immensity that is God. And as time goes on, they get more and more insight, knowledge, and wisdom. Their beliefs actually change. People's beliefs in the Bible change from Genesis 
to revelation. That's why in the beginning of the Bible, there's so much blood and gore. You know those parts of the Bible you read and they just twist you in knots? There's so much blood and gore. That's because people lived in this tribal setting at the time, and they operated in this belief that it's us versus the rest of the world. So they would go out and slaughter the other tribes, and then they would say that God told them to do that. That shouldn't surprise us, because that's what people did at the time. That was their understanding of God at the time. They thought, well, God is for us. They got that right. So he certainly must be against all of our enemies. So, of course, they would say that, that God told us to kill this tribe. That was their thinking at the time. But then along comes this guy named Abraham, and he says, hey, you got the first part right. God is for us. We are blessed. But we're not blessed so that we can go out and oppress and slaughter the other tribes. We're blessed to be a blessing to the other tribes. Beliefs were changing there. And then Jesus took it even a step farther. He said, I don't want you to just, you know, have enemies. I want you to love your enemies instead of going all Game of Thrones on them, all right? People's beliefs change. Or how about this example? It was a common practice in Old Testament times to sacrifice children in religious ceremonies. They did this because they thought God or the gods, some of them believed in multiple gods at the time, were angry at them. And you wanted to keep God or the gods on your side. You wanted to keep them happy. You wanted to appease them. That way they would send rain and your crops would grow and you wouldn't die. So they thought, well, we have to give the gods something. We have to sacrifice something to them to keep them happy, to appease them. And I know, what's the most important thing in my life? Well, it's my child. So surely if I give my child in a sacrifice, that will make God happy. So they developed this, this kind of situation where they'd sacrifice their children. It was absolutely awful. And in Genesis 22, there's a guy named Abraham, the same Abraham I mentioned before, and he's on his way to sacrifice his son Isaac in one of these ceremonies. And basically, to paraphrase, God interrupts it and says, yeah, no. This is gross. This shouldn't be a thing. Their beliefs change. And here's one of my favorite examples. In the Old Testament, it was commonly believed that God could be experienced primarily in the temple, that God's presence resided primarily inside a building, the temple. But then Jesus comes along, and he dies, and he's resurrected from the grave. And upon his resurrection, it says, the veil in the temple was rendered from top to bottom. It was torn in half. That veil separated the common areas of the temple from the most holy areas where God resided. And the message was clear. Not only can we get in to the most holy place and experience God in all of his holiness, but God got out. And now he's out in the streets. He's out in the streets. No building can completely contain his presence. So now God is everywhere. All ground is holy ground. Every bush is a burning bush. The whole world is alive with the presence of the divine. People wrote about and understood God as best they could at the time, but slowly but surely God messed with them, gave them new insight and knowledge and understanding and revelation, and their beliefs changed, their faith expanded. This is why Jesus, when he was preaching on the Sermon on the Mount, he said, you have heard it said, but I now tell you. And then he went on to teach them all these new ideas. Ideas that were new to them. In other words, he was saying, this is where you were, but this is where I'm taking you. This is what you used to believe, but now you get to believe this. 
They didn't lose their faith. They were gaining their faith. Okay? That is so wonderful. And Jesus went on to constantly challenge and mess with people's belief, constantly expanding their beliefs and their faith. Jesus, you can't talk to Samaritans. They are icky. I'm going to do it. Jesus, you can't have women in your leadership group. I'm going to do it. Jesus, you cannot hang out with sinners. They'll spiritually pollute you. I'm going to do it. Jesus, you can't heal that person on the Sabbath. It's forbidden. It's taboo. I'm going to do it. He messed with people. He was getting them unstuck. He was prying them out of their old ruts and their forms of thinking and their beliefs and their biases. And he's still up to that with every single one of us. You love Jesus? Great. That's great. I'm, my heart is so delighted that you know Jesus, that you love him. That is so great. But that's not a one-time experience. Don't just have a one-time experience with Jesus where you meet him and then you're fossilized in that moment. No, our life with Jesus is a journey. And at times it's a terrifying journey. It's terrifying when Jesus messes with you and introduces new ideas to you. During those times you can feel like, oh my gosh, I'm losing my faith. You're not losing your faith. Your faith is actually growing in that moment. So get ready for Jesus to mess with you. So you can have a bigger faith and a bigger God and you can embrace the new and not get stuck in your past. Now let's move on to German beer, okay? This is Ecclesiastes 7.20. <coughs> Excuse me. Indeed, there is no one on earth who is righteous. There is no one who does what is right and never sins. This is also, this, this fact that we all sin is mentioned in another place in the Bible, several other places, but let's look at Romans chapter 3. For all, all, every single human, has sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. So this verse tells us that everybody sins. So what is sin? Well, I like what Paul Poundstone, she's a comedian, I like what she says about sin, and I'll put this on there. The wages of sin is death, but by the time taxes are taken out of it, it's just sort of a tired feeling. Uh, okay. Well, sin is more than just a tired feeling. The word sin is just this fancy Bible word that means falling short of anything that's God's ideal for your life. It's anything that destroys the sense of peace and shalom that you have in your heart. It's doing or being involved in something that leaves you thinking, oh, why did I do that? Oh, why did I say that? Oh, why was I a part of that? That's not me. That doesn't fit with my life. I'm made for more than that. That's what sin is. And according to the verses we just read, we all sin, every single one of us. And most of you have sinned already today. It's only like, you know... 10.30, you've already sinned like multiple times. <laughs> Jay's a husky fan, he sins every day of his life. <laughs> but I want you to know this, that our sins, I tell you this all the time, they don't define us. Sin isn't the deepest thing about us. We're far more than the sum of our worst decisions and our most immoral acts. We're more than that. We're children of God. But we do sin, and this verse, the verse we just read, wants us to admit that. And to own it, because when we own the fact that we're a sinner just like everybody else, some good things happen. First of all, we become nicer people. When you admit that you have sin in your life, you will actually become a nicer person. A great example of this is in the book of John in chapter 8. 
Jesus is at a religious festival called the Feast of Tabernacle, or the Feast of Booths. It was a huge festival. Thousands of people would flock into the, the city of Jerusalem, kind of like Woodstock back in the 60s. And they would stay in tents, so they were camping. And then they would feast, and they would drink lots and lots of wine. What happens when people camp and drink a lot? I'll tell you what happens. There's tent hopping happening. That's what's happening. And people are going around making decisions that they will regret for the rest of their lives. They're hooking up with people they shan't be hooking up with. That's what happens in these festivals, okay? So Jesus is confronted by a group of hyper-religious guys. And they have in tow with them a woman who is caught tent hopping. She was sleeping around. They didn't bring the guy, it was a horrible double standard back in the time, but they just brought the girl. And according, according to their archaic laws, she had to be stoned to death. That doesn't mean being forced to smoke so much pot that you die, okay? <laughs> it means that they threw rocks at her until she died, and if that didn't work, they dropped her off a cliff and dropped bigger boulders on her in case she was especially tough, okay? It was a horrid practice. So here's these guys wanting Jesus to condemn her to death, and they're holding rocks, and they're ready to go. They're ready to go. And Jesus just pauses, and he writes something in the sand, which I'll preach on on a later day, because it's really cool. He writes something in the sand, and he looks at him and says, let he who is without sin cast the first stone. And the scripture says they dropped their rocks and left the oldest went first, and then the youngest. The oldest went first because they had more life experience. In other words, they had a longer list of dirty laundry, didn't they? And they go, oh my gosh, I'm not without sin. I've got a list, okay? <laughs> so they left first, and then the younger ones left thinking, well, my list is shorter, but I've got a list too, so I'm out of here. What a great lesson for us. When God opens our eyes and helps us to face the reality that we've got sin in our life, like everybody else, our response is, we drop our rocks, don't we? We no longer have a desire to condemn a person. We no longer want to judge them. We just want to love them. It's this beautiful transformation. We become a nicer person in that moment. You know, as a culture, we tend to focus on the awful. That's why if you look at any news headlines, get online and just read the news or watch the news on television, it's usually about the awful things happening in the world. Crime, scandal, violence, hatred, all those things. It's the same with many believers. Many believers, Jesus followers, they tend to focus on the awful. They tend to focus on sin way too much. Usually not their own sin, other people's sin. That's what they focus on. And we've turned into a giant squadron of morality police, just like the hyper-religious dudes in John chapter 8. We are unaware of our own sin, but we want other people to suffer for theirs. But the wisdom of Ecclesiastes is this. Own the fact that you sin, but don't focus on it too much. Don't let it get the headlines. Let love get the headlines of your life. Okay? Second reason it's a good thing to admit that you sin, it makes you more joyful. That sounds weird. Admit that you have sin in your life, and it will bring you to joy. But it will simply because of this. Admitting your sin is the first step in being forgiven for your sin, and being forgiven, receiving forgiveness, is one of the most joyful events that can ever happen in your life. Most of us, somewhere along our life, have had the experience 
where we've done something or said something to someone that's deeply wounded and cut them to the core and it devastated them, our actions or our words. And we thought right after we did it, oh no, I've totally screwed up. They are good. This relationship is over. There's no going back. I can't, I can't retrace my steps and get those words back and get those actions back. It's going to destroy this relationship. They're just going to flip me off and bid me adios, and I don't blame them. We've all had times like that. Only to have that person come back to us and say, you know what you did hurt me on a level so deep you can't even understand it, but I forgive you. And when we hear those words, at first it just wrecks us, doesn't it? It just, you, you're undone in that moment. You're reduced to this blubbering pile of goo on the ground, but then you get your breath back and you're delirious with joy because in that moment, you know that your failures weren't fatal and you know that that relationship still has a chance and your heart is just bursting with joy and that's when a person forgives you. The same holds true when God forgives you. Psalm 32 is this beautiful poem, and it starts out saying, how blessed are those whose sins God has forgiven. How blessed, how happy, how delighted it is to be a person whose sins are forgiven. And some of you might be thinking right now, that sounds great, Pastor, in a perfect world, but my sins are too much for God. They're too icky, they're too awful, they're too dark. I'm sure I've exceeded the limits of His mercy. Not even close. Look at what Lamentations chapter 3 says. This is a famous verse, a lot of songs written about it. The steadfast love of the Lord, the chesed of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. So you can never have any sin in your life that's too great for God to forgive because every day His mercies are new. Every day His ability to forgive comes into your life like it's on a conveyor belt. It just keeps pouring into your life. Oh, that's so great, okay? Some of you need to hear this next phrase, so instead of just saying it, I'm going to put it up on the screen. Think about this in your own life. Don't cling to your guilt as if it were more powerful than God. I want to say that to you again because a lot of people listen online too. Don't cling to your guilt as if it were more powerful than God. God's ability for, to forgive us always has been and always will be greater than our guilt and shame. It's unstoppable. And we've got to admit our sin because if we don't, the illusion of our perfection will actually be a barrier that prevents us from moving towards joy because it will prevent us from moving towards the experience of being forgiven and having a clean slate. And this brings us to what I'm going to close with, German beer. In a moment, I'm going to put up a quote by Martin Luther. And if you've never read any of Martin Luther's stuff, he is a, he's an older theologian, he's dead now, but an older theologian and German theologian and, and minister. And he said some brilliant things. In fact, he started the Protestant revolution you know, revolution or whatever you want to call it. But look what he says about our faith in connection to beer. And he obviously loved beer, okay? Let's put this up there. Whoever drinks beer, he is quick to sleep. Whoever sleeps long does not sin. Whoever does not sin enters heaven. Therefore, let us drink beer. <laughs> and, uh, oh my God. That's so not true. That's so funny, okay? The truth is, drinking beer is not a remedy for our sin. 
I'm sorry to break the news to some of you, my dear friends that really love beer. You can drink all the beer you want. It's not going to remedy your sin. In fact, it might add to your sin a little later. Okay, like the first part of this sermon talked about. All right. But when we admit that we do sin, it opens the door for so much goodness in our life. It opens the door for us to be more compassionate to other people because we can't judge them because we sin just like them. And it opens the door for the joyous experience of having your slate, your dirty laundry list, wiped clean. And that is good news. Let me pray for us, Karen. Help us, God, we, and we need help. We can't do this on our own. Help us not to get trapped in the past, but instead to embrace the new, to expand and grow and evolve and change, because you always have more for us. You're always doing new things and new days and teaching us new ideas, Lord. Help us to grab a hold of that, as scary as that might be. And God, as we admit our sin, instead of trying to cover them up, may we drop our rocks, Lord. May instead of casting them towards people, may we instead offer people love, Lord, like you do for us. And may we be led into the joy of receiving your forgiveness, Lord. Thank you, Lord, for this wisdom of Ecclesiastes that's such incredibly good news. And we pray these things in your name. Everyone set? Amen. Amen. Have a great week. We're going to move on in the book of Ecclesiastes next week. But remember all the things that we've got going on here and check those out at the information table. God bless you. See you next Sunday.